Good morning. Um, today's scripture reading will be 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 17 and 18. Then it happened when Ahab saw Elijah that Ahab said to him, Is that you, O troubler of Israel? And he, and he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, in that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and have followed the Baals. Good morning. Good to have you here. So thankful for your presence this morning. Uh, we are going to talk this morning, if you have your Bibles and you're there in 1 Kings, we're going to talk about uh, some things between 1 Kings 16 over to 2 Kings chapter 7. Uh, last week when I started writing the sermon for this morning, it was from 2 Kings 7. And as I started to prepare that material, I started to get some background and work up to that material. And as I did that, uh, a new sermon was born, not 2 Kings 7. But if you come back tonight, we'll talk about 2 Kings chapter 7. There is a message there from four lepers, and it's connected to what we'll talk about this morning. But the, the, the sermon this morning is the result of that study, and that just had a different focus, and it had a different thing that God wanted uh, to talk about, and that thing was ultimately the Word of God. And if you are wondering about the world, and you're wondering about the challenges it's facing, and it seems like every day we wake up, there's a new one, and we keep seemingly being surprised about what the world says or does next. And you might also find a similar idea with the church, that uh, you keep hearing new things from members of the Lord's body, elders, preachers, and individuals within the body saying different things, things we've never heard before, things we, we've never believed, and now they're saying them. And sometimes God's people are caught off guard with this, and they're troubled by it, and uh, they wonder, you know, why is this happening, and what can we do about it? And, and I submit to you, it's, it's formed out of this study. If you want to understand the Lord's people, or if you want to understand the world that surrounds the Lord's people, read your Bible. And to understand those challenges, just go back and read and listen to God talk to His people and watch the attitudes and dispositions of those around them. And ultimately, what it will boil down to is this, how does God's people, how does the world regard, respect, and respond to the Word of God. If you can find out that, then you can find out what the challenges are, and in doing so, well, you'll also find the solutions to that problem. In our study this morning, there are several nations. In fact, if you were to just read, and I'd encourage it if you haven't read this section of Scripture in a while, Give it a read. Listen to what's going on with God's people. There are several nations involved. Israel is involved, the northern kingdom. Judah's involved, the Edomites, the Moabites, the Syrians. They're all involved within these passages of Scripture. There are several kings involved as well. There's Ahab and Jehoshaphat. There's Ben-Hadad, Jehoram, Azariah, and others involved in this. And then there are the people of each one of those nations and the armies that fight for those nations. And as all of this is swirling about, if you read this section, you will be thoroughly impressed with two individuals, prophets 
Elijah and Elisha. We began with Elijah, with all of the things that are going on. It's Elijah that met Ahab. And if you don't know Ahab, go back to chapter 16. And this sets the tone for what's going on within the nation. In 1 Kings chapter 16, and this is just briefly about Ahab, beginning in verse 29, notice that the Bible says, so Ahab, or now Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel. In the 38th year of Asa, the king of Judah, and Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. What kind of man was he? What kind of reign did he have? Verse number 30 says, and Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord. Note the next phrase, more than all who were before him. That's staggering because of the next, next passage. It came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. If you don't know him, you'd have to go back to chapter 12. This is the Jeroboam that was the servant of Solomon. And in chapter 11, when Solomon introduces idolatry into the nation because of those foreign wives which he loved, and because they turned away his heart from following God, God said he would take the kingdom from him. Not from Solomon, but from his son. You remember, Rehoboam was his son, and Jeroboam. And in chapter 12, Rehoboam, because he was cruel to the people and refused to respond to their request, Jeroboam got ten tribes. And God told Jeroboam, I will be with you, and you will be my king. But Jeroboam was fearful that the people would return to Rehoboam when they went up to the temple to worship and because he feared that, Jeroboam was the one who put a golden calf in Dan and in Bethel. And Jeroboam was the one who changed the priesthood. You didn't have to be from Levi to serve at his altar. You could be from anywhere. Jeroboam changed the day of the offering, not the seventh month, the 14th day, but the eighth month, the 15th day, close but not the same. He changed the location. He changed the God of worship. He changed the day of worship. He changed everything about God's worship. And so this moniker is given to him. He becomes known as Jeroboam, the son of Nebath, who made Israel to sin. Ahab, the Bible says, did more evil than all who was before him. And then it says, as if it had been a light thing, he married... Jezebel, and followed in the ways of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. Verse number 31, now that Jeroboam married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbel, king of the Zidonians, and went to serve Baal and worship him. We're talking about the king of Israel. And what's he doing? He is worshiping Baal. What else does he do? Verse number 32 says, he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. Ahab also made the Asherah. Then, thus Ahab did more to provoke the Lord of Israel, the Lord God of Israel, than all the kings who were before him. That individual is ruling the nation of God. Elijah, the prophet, confronts that man. And in chapter 18, that's when the showdown, if you will, on Mount Carmel occurs, where Elijah defeats the prophets of Baal. 
who Ahab worships. This is the Elijah of which James speaks, that he prayed that it might not rain, and it didn't rain. Ahab is furious that it's not raining, and he's angry at Elijah. And so Elijah says to the nation in chapter 18, let's get it right, people. If God is God, serve him. If Baal, serve him. That's verse 21. You'll remember that great statement. Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you halt or go on limping between two opinions? If God is God, serve him. If Baal, then serve him. The people didn't say a word. If you go a little further, Elijah then, in the next several verses, this is when he sets up those two altars. And he says to the people, you build an altar, let the prophets of Baal build an altar, I'll build an altar, and whosoever God answers by fire, that will be God. And the people said, sounds good. That's verse 24. And if you are curious as to how far God's people have gone, how bad are things? It's so bad that they believe there's a possibility that Baal might answer. And so they say, sounds good. Let's see. I hope that just not even for a second did you think this was a good idea. I hope you didn't think, okay, let's see. There is no see. Baal can't answer. He has eyes, but he doesn't see. Ears, but he doesn't hear. Feet, but he doesn't walk. There is no answer coming from Baal, Psalm 135. But the people say, sounds good. Let's see. Well, as you continue to read, if you were to read from verse 25 all the way over to verse 37, you will find these words in verse 37. After they fail, and they fail miserably. In fact, this is that section where Elijah mocks them. He says about their God, why don't you call louder? He probably can't hear you. Or maybe he's busy. Or maybe he's in the restroom. Or maybe he's on a journey. And they call, and they call, and they call, and they scream, and they cut themselves, and on and on they go. When at last they're done, you should read what Elijah does, beginning in verse number 30 down onward. He, he build an altar, yes, absolutely, and then put the stones on, yes. And then he says, build a trench around it and fill it with water, and then pour water on the altar, and then pour more water. And when you read it, after Elijah is done, he prays to God. You know there's only one God in this contest who can hear. Amen. There's only one God in this contest who can answer prayers. Elijah says in verse 37, answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back again. That's the point. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering. And the, sometimes we read the Bible so fast, I generally do it because I'm up here talking for time's sake. Why do you do it? We read the Bible so fast, you can miss stuff. Look at verse 38. The Bible says, Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering. Got it. And the wood. Got it. And the stones. And the dust. And licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Elijah brought revival to the nation. Elijah did that. God did that. After this prayer and after God's response, those false prophets are killed. He puts them to death, verse number 40. 
And after that's done, the people saw it, the enemies were destroyed, and then God brought the rain because of Elijah. Now, as you continue to read, and we're trying to get over to chapter 6 and 7 in the 2 Kings, and so let's move forward. Elijah will be replaced by Elisha. This is chapter, the second book of Kings in chapter 1. And if you read chapter 1, what you'll find is a series of events that happen, I believe, to test Elisha's resolve to see if indeed he wants to be what he's requesting. And so Elijah seems to keep trying to put him off. I'm going here, he says, but you stay here. I'm going to do this, but you stay here. And to every time he says, stay here, Elisha says, I won't do it. I'm going with you. Eventually, there is this transition where Elijah says to Elisha, ask what you will. He says, I want a double portion of your spirit. If you can see me when I'm gone or when I leave, then you'll have it. A chariot of fire breaks them apart, and by a whirlwind, Elijah is caught up to heaven. Elisha does see him, and this transition is made from the great prophet Elijah to now Elisha. Everything else in the background is still swirling. All of these kings, all of these nations, and all of these individuals are still estranged from God. Elisha will be confirmed by God by miracles. In fact, there are at least a dozen between chapter 2 and, and chapter 6 of Elisha confirming him that he was God's prophet. There will be the bitter water made pure, the water for the armies, the Moabites. That They'll see water on one side. They'll see blood on one side. God's people will see water. The widow's oil will be supplied. The Shunammite woman will give birth. Her son will die. Elisha will raise him again. There's poison in the pot, they will say. He cures that. There's the feeding of many with a little. Naaman's leprosy is cleansed. Gehazi and his descendants will get Naaman's leprosy for his greed. There's an axe head of iron that will float. He knows the enemy's plans in their tents, and he will open the eyes of his servants. All of this occurs between chapter 2 and chapter 6. And I didn't mention Elijah parts the waters, and they walk across, and then Elisha does the exact same thing, parts the waters and walks across on dry land. As you're reading all of this, there is a phrase that's associated with Elisha that stands out because it's repeated so frequently. And it ultimately begins to get to the point in this section you can find the phrase beginning in chapter 1 and verse number 9. If you look at 2 Kings 1, it's in this chapter, in verse 9, verse 10, verse 11, verse 12, and verse 13. We'll read verse 9, and you'll note the phrase. The Bible says, the king sent to him to a captain of 50 with his 50. And he went up to him, and behold, he was sitting on the top of the hill. And he said, O man of God, the king said, come down. O man of God. That phrase will occur one, two, three, four, five times in this chapter between verse 9 and verse 13. It occurs again in chapter 4, verse 7, verse 9, 16, 21, 22. Those where the, the woman's oil and then the widow's son, the Shunammite woman's son, 
It occurs in that chapter, 9, 16, 21, 22, 25, 27, 40, 42. Man of God, man of God in chapter 5 and verse 8, verse 14, 15, 20. Chapter 6, verse 6, verse 9, 10, 15, man of God, man of God. Chapter 7 and verse number 2, verse 17, verse 18, and verse 19. What's the importance of this phrase and why? You can see why, can't you, that I couldn't get to chapter 7? When God says something that many times in that window, do you think he wants us to pause and figure out what he means there? Why is that important? We've heard what Ahab is doing. Then there's Judah, and they're in league with Ahab. And then they're the Syrians. They're not even God's people. And then there's the Edomites and the Moabites, and then God's people that think it's a good idea not only to serve Baal, but to challenge Jehovah and see who will answer. And then God keeps saying, here's a man of God, a man of God, a man of God, a man of God. Let me tell you why that's so important. Would you grab the last two words? Not man, of God. Well, that's why it's important. What is it about this man of God? Well, first of all, the man of God demands God, first of all. But then the secondly, the man of God has the Word of God. That Word of God is sustained by the power of God. That Word of God is given from the mind of God. If the man of God is talking, where did he get his information? He got his message from God. The result of that is, that's from the all-knowing mind, not his. The result of the all-knowing mind is also the absolutely accurate mind. God can't make mistakes when he knows everything. That means that whatever God says is worthy of trust. If God said it, you can trust it because he knows everything and he can do anything. Since it's worthy of trust, that means whatever God said will come to pass. What is everybody involved doing? Ahab is following Baal. What else is occurring when the prophet, the man of God, what else is happening? There are false prophets. The false prophets are speaking. The result of the false prophet's message is leading to people serving false gods. And in the midst of it all, there is a man of God. How would you distinguish which was which? Here are prophets on one side, and here's Elijah and Elisha on the other side. How would the people know which was which? They would prove it. Why are there 12 miracles or more in that section? Why does Elisha say to the people, let's set up two altars? And what's his point about the altar? If God is God... Whoever answers by fire, then serve him. 
because that's God. Let's read it a little bit. Go back to chapter 18. Listen to the interchange between the prophets of God, the man of God, and the false prophets and some of these kings. In chapter 18, verses 17 and 18, Elijah and Ahab at last meet. Elijah had been hidden from Ahab. He's been searching for him. You should read the chapter 16, 17. He's been looking for him, can't find him. Obadiah finally meets Elijah, and he says, listen, go and tell your master I'm here. And Obadiah says, I'm not going to tell him that, because every time somebody tells him that they found you, he goes looking, and you're not there. And if I go tell him, he'll kill me. I'm not telling him you're here. He says, listen, I assure you, I'll be here. Go tell him. And he does, and they meet. This is the meeting. Chapter 18, verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah— Ahab said to him, is this you, O troubler of Israel? I love Elijah's answer. He said, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have. Why have they troubled Israel? Because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and you have followed the Baals. What's the difference between these two men? One of us is willing to follow the Word of God, and you have decided not to. And when you stop following God's Word, you started following Baal. What's been the result? You have troubled Israel. You ever wake up in the morning and ask yourself, why all the trouble? Ask yourself a follow-up. How are we regarding God's Word? When you leave God's Word, you will find trouble. There is no other way around it. You will not only trouble yourself, you will trouble the nation. Ahab did. You have troubled Israel, Elijah says. This is what leads into setting up the altars. If God, serve him. If not, how did this end? God answered by fire, and the people said, he's God. Keep going and go over to chapter 1 of 2 Kings. Listen to another example. Now, I didn't tell you about, and if you read it, I, I'd, I'd encourage it. Elijah is sitting on a hill, and the Bible says the king sent a, 50, a captain and his 50. They are not going to say hello. They're going to arrest Elijah. And this is where the phrase occurs. In verse number 9, the king sent to him a captain of 50 with his 50. He went up, and behold, he was sitting on the top of the hill and said, O man of God, the king says, come down. To which Elijah responds, if I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. The next phrase says, then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. What does that tell you? He's a man of God, that's what that tells you. But if he is a man of God, and you call him a man of God, why isn't anybody listening to God? You think the king said, oh, well, he is a man of God, and so we won't send anybody. No, no, the very next verse, verse number 11 says, so he again, wouldn't you love to be in this army? So he again sent to him another captain of 50 with his 50, and he said to him, O man of God, thus says the king, come down quickly, to which Elijah replied, if I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. Do we have 50 more? Chet, you betcha. 
we got 50 more in the army. What should we do? Let's send them too. And so, verse number 13 says, so he again sent the captain my third 50 with his 50. When the third captain of 50 went up, he came. This is different. The Bible says he bowed down on his knees before Elijah and begged him. Oh, man of God, please let my life and the lives of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight. Verse number 15 says, the angel of the Lord said to him, go down with him. Why did that happen? Go back up to verse number one. Why were those men sent? Now, Moab rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahab, and Azariah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber, which was in Samaria. He became ill. So he sent messengers and said to them, go inquire of Belzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I will recover from this sickness. Please don't read that like it's okay. It's not. Why would a king of Israel, when he is injured and, and wondering if he's going to live, send to Belzephon to ask if he's going to make it? Why would he send to an idol? Why would he do that? God wants to know too because verse number 3 says, but the angel of the Lord said to the Elisha the Tishbite, arise and go to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say unto them, is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Now therefore thus said the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed where you have gone up, but you shall surely die. Then Elijah departed. That's why those captains are coming. Go get Elijah. Well, if I'm a man of God, then let fire come down. What's happening to the kings? What's happening to Elijah? Well, I mean, what's happening to Ahab? What's happening to Azariah? What's happening in Israel? There's no regard for God's Word. They don't listen to God's Word. They've rejected it. They've spurned it. And what's God doing? He's sending the man of God who will have the Word of God. And this goes on and on and on in this section. In chapter 3 of 2 Kings, Jehoram and Jehoshaphat want to go to war. Jehoshaphat, who is righteous, says, is there anybody we can inquire of? In chapter 3, in verse number 11, the Bible says, But Jehoshaphat said, Is there not a prophet of the Lord here? Now, why would he have to ask that? We read about 850 prophets. They were just a bail. Jehoshaphat doesn't want to hear from them. He wants to know, Is there any prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of the Lord by him? Let's go back over that quickly. Notice what Jehoshaphat is asking. And this is the point. Is there any prophet of the Lord that we may inquire of the Lord? We don't really want to know about the prophet. What we want to know is the prophet has God's Word. We want to know, is there anything we can inquire of the Lord? Who will get us there? The prophet of the Lord. There is this connection between the prophet and the God, the man of God, serves. That's what makes him so important, is the God he serves. And so, Jehoshaphat says, is there a prophet that we may inquire of the Lord? What will the Lord do? The Lord will give the answer. Verse number 12, Jehoshaphat understands it. He says, the word of the Lord is with him. The word of the Lord is with him. 
In fact, if you were to continue to read that, what you will find is when Elisha meets these individuals, he says to them, if it weren't for Jehoshaphat and his righteousness, I wouldn't even entertain you other two. We wouldn't even have this meeting. That's how far afield y'all are. I wouldn't even talk to you if it weren't for, verse number 14, you can read it. Elisha said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would not look at you nor see you. What follows, verse number 16, he said, thus says the Lord. Verse 17, thus says the Lord. As you continue to read through this section, you cannot miss the emphasis on why everything around and everything in Israel is going wrong because there's no regard for the word of the Lord. That's the problem. The widow's oil in chapter 4 it will be done according to the word of the Lord, the man of God. It will happen just as he said. In chapter 4, the Shunammite woman, first she will get a son. That's verse number 16 and 17. He said, at this season next year, you will embrace a son. And she said, no, my Lord, O man of God, do not lie to your maidservant. And verse 17 says, the woman conceived and bore a son at that season the next year, as Elisha had said. She will be raised, or that son will die and then be raised. That brings us to chapter 5, where Naaman is. There are three verses that stand out with regards to Naaman and his cleansing. You know of his description in verse 1 and verse number 2. But then in verse number 3, the Bible says, She said to her mistress, I wish that my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cleanse him. None of us think Elisha cleansed Naaman. But listen to what the little maid says. Oh, that my master were with the prophet in Israel. He would cleanse him. Elisha is in the tent in verse number 8. When he hears about the kings, I say he's in the town, we know who it was. When he hears about the king renting his garments, he says this. It happened when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes. He sent word to the king saying, why have you not torn your clothes? Let him come to me. Why does he need to come to you? So that he will know there's a prophet in Israel. The little maid said, oh, if you were with the prophet, he'd cleanse you. You know what the king of Syria did? He wrote a letter and sent it to the king of Israel. She didn't say that. She said the prophet. When the king of Israel got the letter, he read it, and he said, he's trying to pick a war with me, knowing I can't cleanse this man, and so he tore his clothes. When Elijah heard that the king of Israel tore his clothes, he said, listen, why don't you send him to me? If he comes to me, he'll know there's a prophet in Israel. What did Elisha do when Naaman arrived at his tent? He sent a messenger out, and he said, go dip in the Jordan seven times. You and I know that Naaman rebuffed at first, and then eventually he went away. His servant stepped in. But listen to what Naaman says after his cleansing in verse 15. When he returned to the man of God with all his company and came and stood before him, he said, Behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So please take a present from your servant. 
I said three key verses. What were they? Verse 3, oh, that my master with the prophet. Verse 8, let him come to me. He'll know there's a prophet. But after the word prophet is used twice, notice name is conclusion. Now I know there is no God except in Israel. You know that's been the point all along. Here is a Syrian king. Here is a, a mighty man of valor who is a Syrian. He knows there's no God. How did he get there? By the prophet. What did the prophet have? The word of that very God that cleansed him. Now I know there is no God except in Israel. There is a plot to capture Elisha in chapter 6. Again, wicked kings refusing to follow God's word, rejecting it. He, he knew that their secrets in Syria when they wanted to attack Israel, he knew them. And so he saved the king of Israel twice, chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. He saved them out of their hands. And the king of Syria was so upset, how does he know? And somebody told him, listen, Elisha is telling what you're saying in your tent. There is a prophet over there. He's saying the things you're saying. When you're in your secret tent thinking you're talking along about your plans, Elisha knows them. To which this king says, well, go get Elisha. And they do. When they go to get Elisha, if you have your Bibles, look down at about verse number 15. They go and they surround the city where Elisha is. Verse 14, he sent horses and chariots. Verse 15, the Bible says, Now, when the attendant of the man of God had risen early and gone out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was circling the city. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? Here's Elisha's answer. Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. That must have surprised the servant because there's only two of us. And I can see. I see you, and I see me, and I see the army. And Elisha says, don't worry about it. There's more with us. Elisha prayed, verse 17, and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around. Amen. You know, God's people should remember that always. There's more with us than with them Amen. because God is with us always. Let's make some application. God's word has been revealed, friends. This is the problem. People wake up in the morning, well, what's going on with the world? Why are they doing this? What's going to happen? Scripture is the word of God revealed to the prophets. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, it says it's God-breathed. That really is the point. It's God's word. It's the word of God. It's God's word, and it's inspired, all of it. Inspired of God, breathed out by God, and it's profitable for doctrine, for correction, for instruction, and righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto every good work. It lacks nothing you need. All things that pertain to life and godliness, Peter says. Those prophets spoke what God revealed. Those prophets wrote what God revealed, and thus we have it. We have in our possession heaven's message, God's mind revealed. We have it. The miracles performed by these men manifested the God and demonstrated that they were God's men. That's why we have those miracles in the Bible. God's people in the Bible and today will always encounter danger, difficulty, defeat, and even death. 
when we reject, refuse, and deny and disobey God's Word. And by so doing, we reject and we refuse and we disobey the God who gave His Word. And if you'll go back and read passages, that ends up being the confrontation. Ahab says to Elijah, you're troubling Israel. He says, I haven't troubled Israel. You have. You have not obeyed the commandments of God. Chapter 1 of 2 Kings, he says, is that because there's no God in Israel that you're sending the Baal Zephon? In chapter 5, let him come to me and he'll know there's a God in Israel, a prophet in Israel and no other God in Israel. Here's the question. How do you regard the Scripture? As God's Word or the Word of men? Christians and non-Christians would do well to answer a similar question to the one Elijah asked. Why do you go on limping between two opinions? If the Bible is the inspired Word of God, then trust it and obey it. If it's not, then renounce it and reject it as nothing more than the untrue, unreliable word of men. But it's one or the other. And whichever one it is, why won't you accept one and move on with your life? You do yourself no favor by limping between the two. Christians sit around in buildings and they keep thinking about this problem and that problem, and they keep trying to figure out why is this happening? Let me ask you, do you believe this is the inspired word of God? Let's start there. We won't have many problems after we start there. But people don't regard the Scripture as the inspired Word of God. No, they don't. They keep trying to use the Bible to overcome challenges. That's how I'm going to use it. They keep using the Bible to, to weather the storms of life. I'm going to get through. I'm going to go to the Bible and find it. They keep using the Bible as a self-improvement book, a marriage improvement book, a parenting improvement book, a marriage prep book, a prayer answering book, an action approving book, a spirit calming and claiming book. Somebody say, well, Eric, the Scriptures will do all of those things. I don't disagree. They help you in every way you want to be helped. Absolutely will. But that's not it. Mm -mm. That's not it. If you regard the Bible, if you read the Bible, if you respond to the Bible first as the Word of God, that will make it truth, that will make it trustworthy, that will make it authoritative. And when you read it like that, when you consume it like that, when you believe it like that, then you'll do what it says, trusting the God who gave it. But people don't do that. No. People try to have God's results without God. People want God's promises without obeying God's Word. And so people encounter difficulties. And then you know what they do because the Bible is a self-improvement book? When it doesn't work for them, they just put it down. Amen. But because it's going to help me solve my problem, well, when they, as soon as they don't have the solution, they stop doing what it says. It's a marriage improvement, but why don't you do it then? And your marriage would improve if it was the Word of God. See, if God said it, it'd be authoritative. And if it's authoritative, then you must do it. But it ain't that for you. No, it's a marriage improvement book, and so I'm going to use it, see what it's saying, I guess I'll try to fix and then when it don't, then I'll put it down, or I simply won't do it. 
when that doesn't work, they start listening to other teachers. They find me and they say, have you heard about? Oh, this guy. Oh, this right here? You should hear about it. Now, they know I'm a gospel preacher. People talking to me. They know I'm a gospel preacher. They know I believe the book. I'm trying to follow the book. And then they say to me, but Derek, have you heard? Because they got a new teacher. They got a guru that's got some insight God just cannot meet. They got some new stuff. God ain't touched this subject. God never said anything. God don't know this stuff. How's that going? Because the Bible is not the Word of God. See, that would make it authoritative. And as a result of that, they start following other gods. The reality is, there is a way to view the Bible. It's found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And the Apostle Paul commends the Thessalonian brethren for having the right disposition towards Scripture. He says, for this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when you receive the Word of God, which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the Word of men, but as it is in truth, the Word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. That's how they received it. And you know what that means? That means when God says it, that's it. That's what that means. That means when God says that direction, we go that direction. When God says this action, then it's this action. When God says don't, we don't. When he says do, we do. When God says it, then that settles it. That's what that means. That's how they received it. Let me ask you again. How do you receive it? Those problems that Israel had, and they had problems. Oh, we just scratched the surface. In fact, eventually... The Assyrians will come, and the Babylonians will come, and the Jewish people, God's people, will go away into captivity for years. Northern tribes will come back very small, and the southern tribes as well. A remnant will return. Let me ask you this. How do you receive the Word of God? If God has spoken on a subject then that's what it is. Is that the way you view it? If God has said, then is that the way? You know, if you and I view this as the Word of God, nobody would have to ask us to read it. Nobody would have to twist our arms to consume it. We would be like the deer panting after water. If it's God's Word, then God said it. It's no wonder the psalmist says, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus says, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. What's happening in our nation? Why is the church so challenged? What are we going to do about our kids? Man, I don't know what to say about my marriage. I can't seem to figure out, is there any calm? I'm just so anxious. I don't know what to do. Send him to me. 
He'll know there's a prophet in Israel. Now I know there is no God but in Israel. How do you regard the word of God? You're not a Christian this morning. Then that very word tells you how to become one. You must believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You must submit to him and repent and change your mind and your life about the way you're living. You must confess his name and you must be buried with him in baptism for the remission of your sins and God through Jesus will save you. If you have never done that, friends, you don't have a more pressing issue in your life. The world can keep doing what it does, but your greatest need is Jesus. What if you are his child? Friends, you'd have to examine yourself. You'd have to examine your heart. You'd have to ascertain whether or not, like in Israel of old, those of us inside of New Testament Israel have set aside God's word, started to listen to other messages and messengers, and started to follow after other gods, setting aside the commandments of the Lord. And friends, if that's your life, then make a change. The world will improve. You and I will improve. Everything around us and in us will get better if we regard God's word as coming from God and live it out in our lives. If we can help you this morning in any way, if we can assist you, we invite you to come as we stand and as we sing.